but like having these things that are that um, eudaimonic is the word to describe it. Eudaimonic. Okay. Eudaimonic. eudaimonic. So there's this traditional theory of what happiness is. You have uh, hedonic, right? Um, so you have just like hedonism. I've lived that. Right. It's the idea that if we do things in our day that bring us pleasure, we're going to be happy. So if I have good food, good talks, you know, I'm around good people, ultimately I'll be a happy person. Mm-hmm. But if I have pain, which a lot of my patients, they deal with chronic pain at, at, or medical conditions that are very much impairing them or they're, they, they're wheelchair users that have a really hard time getting around, but yet they're still happy. Well, that tells you something about the nature of happiness, that there is some genetic factors that are involved in it, that some people are just always going to be happier than others. Like Philip de la Monica? Yeah, that guy is amazing. <laughs> He's happy I every day, I dude. Know. I just, I, I can't, I can't be that happy. He's an incredible human being. I admire that very much. Um, so there's these genetic factors. There's cultural factors as far as, you know, how, um, how much we stress out about little things. So like uh, Finland, they've been on the international happy list for like six years in a row, right? They've been number one. Why? Because they kind of are laid back, even though they live in a very cold, wintry place. They're more laid back and they have social activities that are also exercise oriented frequent times. Mm. So like I said, social support, accountability, exercise, that's my secret to happiness. Um, But yeah, so you have these things that are factoring into happiness. I want to talk about um, eudaimonia. It's not just hedonism. Like I was saying with my patients, the, the eudaimonia if you're serving a greater purpose, you can go through pain, but it's not necessarily suffering. Yeah. You know, you can go through these terrible things in your life if you make good on them because you're serving a purpose, you're, you're paying it forward. You're doing something more than just the summation of your experiences. There's a gestalt there. So eudaimonia, I would say, is one of the most important things, and there's research that suggests that it, it is very, very important so that even if you suffer, as long as you're serving a greater purpose whatever that is, yeah, you're going to feel much better by the end of the day. So you're saying that like if someone for just to use for an example, has a spiritual life mm-hmm. like me, I've always believed in God, even though I didn't behave that way for extended periods of time of my adult life yeah, and juvenile, my life, I'll just say life in general, that plays a role in recovery. Of course. Okay. One of the most profound to have. And then like I talk about it from a very third person perspective, because like I said, I, I try to be more scientific about these things. I don't like to put my beliefs on anybody else in that way. Um, so having a philosophy that is reinforcing your actions, guiding you, giving you purpose, why wouldn't that help you? Whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Islam, whether it is Christianity, whether it's, you know, you have, um, you know, a monotheistic God, whatever it, it is, as long as you have some kind of structure that makes you feel some kind of solace and this planet that we're spinning super fast through the universe on, our struggles seem like they're part of some kind of plan and, and have some kind of reason that they happen. It's nice to think that there's a plan for us and that it's all going to be okay. So faith is one of the very most powerful things that people can have through difficult times, for sure. When it comes to trauma, um, going back to going over to getting into, I mean, taking just a little bit step back from post-traumatic growth, but just the trauma itself, are there things that are 
would be considered bad practices when you're going through trauma. Like when you're going through it, you know, try to avoid this and that. I would say there's some things that are less helpful than others. And we also have to consider that there are some people that are not well suited for trauma treatment. Um, there's some like, let's say, prohibitive things that we really watch out for, red flags. As a psychologist, before I do any kind of trauma treatment, I really have to be careful if the person is dealing with psychosis, you know, or if they are in a situation where they can't open up and share freely, or if they're in a dangerous situation. So if someone's in, you know, domestic abuse situation where they've experienced sexual assault from their partner and they're constantly just trying to survive because they're dealing with a very dangerous partner, then it's more about, okay, rather than treating the trauma, I need to make sure they're safe first. So there's these red flags you got to watch out for. And, and there's people that have psychosis that as soon as you start digging into the trauma, it triggers worse symptoms of psychosis or Whoa. psychotic symptoms. They hallucinate. They start feeling much worse. So you got to be really careful that you assess for that. Um, and then also there's people that, um, you know, have impaired memory, might have dementia. Sometimes with the veterans that I work with, they can't, remember some of the things that we do in treatment. So unpacking that trauma without being able to cover it back up and regulate is not very good. So those are some things we really watch out for. You want, you want to hear something crazy. Um, when I was doing EMDR, I remember uh, you visualize. And when you visualize, like it's, it's vivid. Is it lucid? Is that the right word? Lucid? Because I know that it goes to the dreams, like lucid dreams. But it's visceral. Visceral. It's visceral, these memories. Yeah. And there is a, this is a crazy thing, and it kind of freaked me out. That didn't freak me out. Never mind. I was so broken. Nothing freaked me out. But it just it raised a concern what I brought up to the therapist on the site. I mean, not the site, but at, at the session. There was a time near the end of my relationship that I was in where the person was, like, flagrantly lying to me and manipulating me. Like, it wasn't even hidden anymore, mm. right? It was just... It was, it was very, very obvious, obvious and apparent. And what it did was revealed previous behavior, like the, the, the whatever, the, the mask came off, so to speak. Yeah. And so I'm in EMDR dealing with that because it really hurt. And that all was attached to the abandonment traumas and stuff like that. And um, as I was visualizing it, um, an image appeared in the memory that wasn't in, didn't occur in reality. And um, what it was was that a large green um, serpent appeared and it was coming out of her, out of her mouth as she was saying these things and it was trying to enter me repeatedly. And it's, it was so vivid that as I thought about it, it's like it was there. And um, I remember I was telling my sister, I was explaining to her, I was like, no, no. It's like someone goes, hey, remember that one time we went to Magic Mountain where me, you and Larry were riding the car? Yeah. There's no guy. I'm making up Larry, but you know, and she was, yeah. But as she's thinking about it, there's like a polar bear sitting in the back seat too that just feels why am I why do I have a polar bear in my thing? And but I I I think I mean we worked it out and and we looked at symbolic we talked about symbolic things because sometimes my subconscious or you could even say it's spiritual yeah. to some degree that a dragon because usually a dragon represents something and it was a green dragon yeah and um, but I remember that and it was because you were talking about hallucinate because we were digging. Like, I seriously thought when I'm going through these sessions at the beginning, I thought I was going to go crazy. I'm serious. It felt like yeah. I was on the edge of losing my mind. That's a normal symptom. Okay. That's yeah. That's normal. I that, was like... There's a lot of people that feel that way. 
Okay. As you're feeling this, as you're feeling all the intense symptoms, as, as you go through it, you feel like your symptoms increase and get worse because you're paying attention to them. Yes. Because you're paying attention to them. All of a sudden you're paying, you were talking about how it could reoccur, talked about hypervigilance, talked about all these things, you know, have nightmares. You're paying attention way more where before you're just trying to cover it up, right? Yes. Just trying to stuff it down so it doesn't bother you. Yeah, so, that's exactly. Um, so it's normal that you, you feel like you're going insane or you're going you're gonna to lose it. Um, but what you bring up is symbolism and I have one more additional practice I got to, don't let me Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I got so, you. So one more you should never do. Um, so there is actually art and that's another huge thing. Expressing yourself uh, however you want to do it. There's some people that can go to therapy and some people don't feel comfortable talking about it, which is okay. Writing it out, your trauma experience is better than never even saying anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, writing it out or even drawing pictures, you may be able to symbolize something that you can't put into words, you know, and that's so profound. They used to do that a lot with children that had dealt with some kind of trauma because they don't necessarily have the vocabulary to describe it, but they can maybe draw what they felt or what they saw or the things about their experience. So art therapy, you know, or making that part of your, your self-disclosure uh, practice yeah. can be very powerful. Um, yeah. So, you know, that what you're described to me is it, it symbolized something that she was doing to you. If I had to guess, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not and going, something negative. It had a negative energy uh, vibe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're expensive. I'm not going psychodynamics and, yeah. or, you know, analyzing dreams. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Yes. Of course. Um, but it makes sense. So one more practice that I just realized. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you, you've been around longer than I have. You remember satanic panic in the eighties? What is that? You don't I grew up in a black neighborhood, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do stuff like that. It affected everybody. Say, say, oh, wait, hold on. Was your about Richard Mears when he had his hand? Like the whole ACDC, Antichrist, devil child, like they thought like Satanism was being spread? That? That's been going on with rock and roll for a long time. Oh, okay. So in the 80s, there was, um, they found three bodies of kids. I forgot the exact story. They found it. They were drowned in a, um, in a river and uh, they thought that they were murdered by a satanic cult as like some kind of ritual. So it started kind of these murmurs of Satanism. And then there was a school where um, all of a sudden all these children were saying that they had been molested as part of a sex cult that was perpetrated by Satanists, right? And there's all these stories of there's catacombs underneath the school or tunnels underneath the school and this is where it happened. And they just, what they were using was hypnotherapy to try to extract the experiences of these children mm. and but they were asking the questions in such a way that was guiding them to certain answers like leading questions exactly so hypnotherapy you got to be really careful when you're messing around because you can there's always the risk of implanted memories yes and that that just goes back to you know the human brain is inherently flawed and you'll see that in in eyewitness testimony we're really bad at recalling the way things happen. I see I hit something. Can I tell you something real quick? I'm Please. sorry to interrupt. Yeah. This happened about a month ago, okay. actually. Okay. Um, I was traveling in San Clemente. I forget the name of the, the street. Are you familiar with this area? A little bit. You know where Trader Joe's is in San Clemente? I think a, so. Okay, Trader Joe's. I was driving there. There's a fire station, so forth. I'm driving behind. This is how I first let me explain how I perceived what occurred. Okay. I'm driving and... Uh, there's a car in front of me and someone 
pulled in front of them from the oncoming traffic, like turned, like turned left, you know, on a red at a signal, but, you know, ran the red and they collided in the cars, 180. And then this pregnant lady gets out, which is, this really did happen. And she was bleeding, dude. And she was whole double. I mean, she was due pregnant. Like, I don't know. Could be due any moment pregnant. She's doubled over holding her stomach. Her car's still rolling. I actually jumped in the car, put the park in on stars. Like what happened? I'm telling them this happened. I'm riding behind this vehicle and it, it, another car hit it and they 180 and spun and, and so the police arrived and the sheriffs and the whole thing and the, and uh, they're asking me what happened. And I'm, I'm explaining to them, um, you know, the same story. And the other driver's like, that's a lie. Like just losing it. And the sheriff's like, hey, you need to go over there. You know, why are you lying? I go, I'm not. Listen, I don't, you know, I'm going to quote my friend from Alabama. Hey, this is not my monkey, not my zoo. I, I have no, I don't have a dog in the fight. As he yeah. says, not my monkey, not my yeah. zoo. So they were... Um, that's why I saw it, you know? And I go, well, do you know what? My car, don't worry, it recorded it because <laughs> it has cameras all around it. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, send us, send us the uh, the footage and blah, blah, blah. I go, cool, yeah. And they're like, thank you. I knew she pulled in front of me, the pregnant lady. I knew she pulled in front of me. I was stopped at the, I, um, stopped at the red light. Then I pulled forward and, you know, and I was like, all right, our story's aligned. Yeah. I pulled the footage. Not, dude, the light was red as we were, the girl, woman was, the pregnant woman was in front of me. I'm like slowing down and my mom's in the passenger seat. So I'm slowing down and the lady keeps going. She runs the red clearly. The pregnant woman hits, no, the cars don't spin around. They just hit head on, bow. And it's the woman in front of me's fault, yeah. you know, yeah. because that other woman had a clear uh, turn. Oh my and I was like, dude, my mind, I actually with the footage, because I sent it to the investigator, I said, I have to... Uh, I apologize for the misstatement. I don't know what I thought I saw. The footage speaks for itself and I stand behind it. I, I was wrong. Yeah. You know, and I and the woman said, Can you send me a copy? And I sent her a copy. She said, I'm sorry, I remembered it wrong. And she actually wrote me back and goes, I do too. She goes, I but I think she knew. She must have been texting. Yeah. I mean, the light was red. We were both about t- 25 yards out. I start everyone slowing down and she's like just coasting regular and went into the intersection, but my so mind crazy. saw it different. Yeah. yeah. That if I didn't have a camera, I'm the eyewitness. I was the only one that stuck around because mm-hmm. I knew my car filmed it. That lady might have been screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, because there was no um street cameras. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, humans are intellectually lazy. And I say that about everyone. Yeah. But that we use heuristics and rules of thumb to make decisions on a regular basis. And we, we engage in illogical thinking all the time. But that was an incredible story. And it just, it, you know, it, it does help the idea that we can misremember things. And we do have to be careful when it comes to trauma that, you know, you really got to not guide, lead someone with questions, but you want to allow the person to rediscover, expand their perceptual experience and explore the emotions and then incorporate what they found hopefully in a more balanced way. And it, it does go back to that idea of like just those cognitive fallacies that perpetuate symptoms. Like you're thinking that you're accursed. Like um, a lot of people that go through childhood trauma or any kind of really what they call adverse childhood experience or ACE, mm-hmm. which is a really big risk factor for later on psychopathology, mental illness, they lay down things about themselves, which are called schemas or 
kind of ways of thinking about ourselves and the world mm-hmm. and um, just kind of the, these structures that we have in our mind, right? I know what a table is. It's, there's a schema in my mind that tells me it has four legs. It's made out of wood. It looks like this. That's the, like the idea, right? Yeah. So we have these schemas that we develop in childhood and we very rarely go back in and challenge them when we're adults, but we're carrying around this inherent schema that we have that you know we developed when we were a much less wise person. But that's also something that can get triggered. And you've kind of talked about how, you know, because of this person abandoning you, it kind of came back, caused one bomb, caused a second bomb. But it's that schema that was laid down in childhood that you then had to finally forcibly dig up and challenge. Yeah. You know, so humans are intellectually lazy (laughs) and we cause a lot of problems for ourselves by the way we think. And that's why cognitive behavioral therapy is so effective for a lot of reasons. But if we can just think more like a scientist, a lot of times we can make ourselves feel better about these situations. You know, challenging someone's kind of narrative as far as how much were you really to blame for this thing that happened? What is the evidence for or against it? go through it and they're like, okay, maybe I I wasn't as responsible for this thing. How could I have seen that coming? You know, going back to the example of the woman that was sexually assaulted, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, this, um, when you're talking, there's so many things that pop in my head because you're hitting on so many things. Go ahead. But it's one thing about uh, the trauma. I'm just speaking, I only can speak for myself. I can't speak for other people, but. Yeah. A trauma trigger, like I, I can identify when something's trauma going to be traumatizing. Like I've even seen car accidents, or I think we're talking about a Tega highway where there's people. You know, I'll look away. Like I'm not even going to let that into my mind. But when you're tr- super triggered, which I've talked about before, is that I didn't even know I was triggered. I've it's a you don't it's a feeling that's unfamiliar. So I don't know that I'm tra- I just know that I feel very different right now and there's something wrong and it's going downhill and I don't know what it is. That's the thing. And um, I would guess like I'm fortunate that I don't drink alcohol. I don't uh, do drugs. I don't drink caffeine, which is a drug actually. But I won't even go into that because it's judgmental right now. No, that's okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, I agree <laughs> no, with you. But um, no, because we were talking about caffeine earlier. <laughs> um, but I think if I was doing those things, I would have, I would have be quickly became an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. So I was fortunate, but the unfortunate side is that I just had to face it, you know, like pretty head on. But because I think if, if I was abusing alcohol or I had an escape, I would feel this feeling and I know it's bad, but I don't know what it is. It seems like a, a, some people would just numb that because you know, like it's almost like a creepy feeling that, you know, like, someone's following you, you know, in the shadows of an alley. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like that. And you're like, holy crap, you know, this is, this is not, you know, I'm getting, this is not good. But if you ignore it, obviously it's bad, but, and you don't know who the person is. That's how, uh, um, at least for me, a big trauma sat on me, but then it just got closer and closer and grabbed me by my throat and threw me on the ground. But, um, but it, like, you know, like you're saying, it, it, that feeling of being triggered, um, a huge part of, I would say, overall managing trauma or regulating emotions is mindfulness and meditation. And I'm going to have to do a little sales pitch because, you know, there is some very important things that change over time. And maybe I think it's an important part of post-traumatic growth that, like you said, you got to be careful not to, not to judge. Mm-hmm. 
right? Well, we tend to be inherently judgmental. And oftentimes we'll be very quick to judge. But when it comes to doing that work, the trauma work, you got to be curious and explore and allow yourself to just see what's there and be self-aware. And doing breathing exercises helps regulate, but it also allows you to be aware of when things pop in your head, when you have physical sensations. Mindfulness is this meta skill that I can't rant enough about it, that it will also help performance, helps with memory, helps with mood. Um, so can I just go in for a second about what personality is? Hey, mi casa su casa, amigo. Okay. So personality, there's lots of different theories, right? We talked about Freud, how is id, ego, and superego. But can I say one thing? Yeah. Some people get confused on the definition of ego. Ego isn't necessarily a negative thing, right? Mm. So there's ego in the sense of our everyone has like an ego that we function with, and it's kind of our evaluation of ourselves. And also we have like kind of our our well-being, our subjective well-being, what we think about ourselves, self-image, self-concept, all these things are tied together, right? But you can have a healthy ego, right? Everyone has a certain amount of ego. We function better when we're a little bit above reality, just a okay. little bit. But you have people that are narcissists, which are really, really high. Okay, because sometimes people think of ego because it's always used in a, in a negative way. They go, oh, man, he just has, he is his ego, dude. Yeah. And so everyone associates that. But you can have a healthy ego, right? Yeah. You need some amount of ego. Um, and I mean, there's so much tied into what ego is. But mm -hmm. I would say it's like your vision of your self-efficacy, how well you can make things happen. Yeah. You know, your self-image. All these things are part of your ego. And yes. we need some amount of ego because it protects us at the same time. They have this idea of ego strength, right? Yeah. That's how much you're willing. I'm going to mess it up how much you're willing to, to be able to do certain things in your life. It's like your energy. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. So I don't know the exact definition, but ego is important. When I talk about with Freud with ego, he's talking about there's this mechanism in, in your mind that functions to mediate these two forces, Got it. which is the super ego, which is like the ideal self and the id, which is the fundamental hedonistic side of you. Right? Okay. We all have these things in the ego, ideally measures the two, but that's by measuring the two, that's who we are. And that becomes our ego. Okay. Right. And yes. hopefully I did that right. Um, so we all need some amount of ego. That's a theory of personality. One of the most scientifically supported explanations for personality is going to be, um, the trait theory, right? The big five from Costa and Cray, I think it's 2000, uh, no, excuse me, 1992, they came out with this theory. It's this idea that we all are on a spectrum of traits, right? And they can be high or low. And there's really like five factors that are high and low. And it spells the acronym OCEAN. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness. And the last one is neuroticism. That also has some connotations to it. Some, pe some people like to call it emotionality. So we can all be very high or very low in things like extroversion, right? Okay. You said you talk a lot. I think you talk a good amount. <laughs> Great for a podcast, right? But you have a certain amount of extroversion, right? I would say you're a little bit more extroverted than I am, right? Some people may be more open to experiences. You talked about your friend that likes to go and smoke toad venom, right? Yeah. She's more open to experiences than I am. I Same wouldn't here. go down there and do that. Me right? neither. Um, so you all have a certain amount of high and low of these things. What you tend to see in people that that deal with more psychopathology, they tend to have more neuroticism. And neuroticism is this reactive emotional state that people have. You see how some babies are just more temperamental than others, Yeah. right? 
and you have temperament, but usually if you have a, a pretty uneasy temperament, you tend to be more neurotic, which means you're more likely to have negative emotional experiences. You're just more grumpy, more irritable, more depressed, more anxious. Um, and then you tend to be more hostile if you're high in neuroticism. I mean, there's different factors of it, right? Hostility, um, a negative emotionality. There's a couple other ones, right? Um, so one thing that mindfulness is such a superpower is that it reduces, if you practice it, reduces your negative emotionality. It reduces your neuroticism if you practice it. And that means that you're much, you're dealing with less negative emotions over time. And then, you know, they have found that people that are more agreeable and more extroverted tend to be happier. They tend to have more well-being and you can imagine why, but those are all factors that you can work on. Yeah. So like you have deep seated, you know, everyone has some amount of genetic kind of predisposition for things and everyone has certain levels of neuroticism and temperament that they, they were born with. But if we practice things like this meta skill of mindfulness, we can be less reactive to things over time. And I think a big part of post-traumatic growth is that you've been through such negative experiences. You learn maybe not to judge them as harshly and you learn to be maybe more at peace with yeah. some of your experiences. It's like, you know, I can say that, that, so this morning I walked out of my front door, my backpack broke, a, a fly flew in my eye, and I dropped my coffee, spilled my coffee. Happened within the first five minutes of my day when I walked out my front door. I can, say, <laughs> I can say, this ruined my day, this is going to be a bad day. Yeah. Or I can say, okay, we had some hiccups. That's in the past. Be mindful and do the best I can, Right. And you could see how certain people would, they would allow that to ruin their day. Yeah. But I mean, these are little problems compared to what other people deal with. But that just like getting back to the idea of post-traumatic growth, that mindfulness is one of these meta skills that can really help people just feel better overall. Mindfulness, is that, is meditation required part of mindfulness or can you just be mindful in general, like just kind of open you know, like you're like almost like empathy mm -hmm. for yourself and others. So mindfulness as, as it's defined, I really like John Kabat-Zinn and his conceptualization that it's um, paying attention in a particular way. So it's attention mm -hmm. in a particular way on the present moment in a non-judgmental way. So that's three points, right? Mm -hmm. And it's devilishly sim simple, but very difficult to do. My excuse me. Meditation encompasses a lot of different practices. There's Catholic meditations when you're when you're praying. There is meditations that go all the way back to Buddha and Buddhist practices. There's all types of different meditations. Yeah. Mindfulness is a facet of what meditation is, and we've kind of stolen it from Eastern practices and made it all Western and used it as a intervention. But I I would just say there's no wrong way to do it. And usually we use some kind of physical sensation as an anchor. Yeah. So for example, if I was going to ask you to practice mindfulness, all you got to do is just find some kind of sense, sight, smell, taste, hearing, whatever it is, you know, touch, and you just focus on that and then you just sit with it. And if you do that for five or 10 minutes, you're going to start realizing that you get distracted. You start realizing, oh, I have, I got to go do this. What time is it? Oh, you know, my itchy, whatever it is, these things will pop in your head. And these are all private events, okay? 
or you might feel pain, you might feel emotions, you might feel thoughts. Every time that you get distracted, you're developing insight into a personal event, private event, right? And that skill of being aware of where your attention is at any time and being aware of yourself really translates into self-regulation in the future that you can recognize when you have a negative thought. You can recognize when you're feeling sad or upset. And then you can also self-regulate and just come back to the moment and not get stuck in that maelstrom of thoughts when it starts bugging you, whether it be anxiety or thinking about a trauma that keeps being intrusive. Mindfulness is this meta skill that allows you to really dedicate what you want to pay your attention to. That's interesting you say that. Um, I have a, I got to stop saying that because I always say that. That's interesting you say it. It's like, well, I feel very good. I'm oh, yeah. hoping I'm interesting. Yeah, you are interesting. Thank you. I, just, I mean, I need to expa- expand my vocabulary. Um, the, what you're talking about meditation, I've dabbled in it a little bit. Okay. And um, there's a book back when I was going to cognitive therapy. Um, I probably went to cognitive therapy consistently from like the age of 25 to 35 because I knew that. The stuff was there, you know, that, you know, and there's a book called Emotional Alchemy and it combines Buddhism, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not Buddhist and just some of the principles, like you say, taking, Mm because when you said that, it reminded me of that book and mindfulness and it even talks about uh, meditating and seeing your life as if it's a movie and you're observing, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, there's different uh, scenarios or circumstances use these different methods. But um, one thing that I noticed that kind of gets me there, almost feels meditative, is archery. You ever do archery? I've never done it, but I could see how that. You're just, you're just, like you're just. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about it, but it's very. I'm not talking um, compound bow where you have all the little mechanisms to shoot, but the old school recurve that looks like your typical bow and arrow setup. Yeah. Because you're controlling your breathing. You're not even th- really thinking about anything. You're just looking at the target and you're releasing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like skipping rocks. You know, like how you would skip rocks in Daydream? It's very similar. I can't believe you went there. <laughs> skipping rocks? No. You're going into the things that you can do that make you feel meditative. But I'm going to um, I'm gonna add additional thing. You ever heard of flow states? Yes, I have. But please share. So like I, I, I haven't said yet, but I have a big background in sports psychology, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, I got into it because I was a terrible competitor. I got my butt kicked a lot, and I was like, I got to get better at this, right? I do well at one tournament, lose it another. Do well at one, lose it another. I figure out, oh, well, I got to do sports psychology. And instead of going and seeing a sports psychologist or reading a book, I got a PhD. Yeah. Silly me. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's what everyone does. Um, so I had the pleasure of speaking with um, Chixon, Mahaili Chixon, who is – the original theorist for flow states. Mm-hmm. He wrote all the books about it. Incredible human being. You know, he's not around anymore. Um, so I, was, I feel so honored that I, I got a chance to speak with him. But there's this idea that we can't always be happy. And life is kind of like pain. We're going to have good and we're going to have bad. Yeah. But the more we incorporate peak experiences, and that's what, you know, Chixit Mahaili Chixon was saying, um, was that basically we can have five minutes minutes of heaven. And maybe when you're playing with that bow, you are having just a flow state where you're able to engage in something and really enjoy it. And jiu-jitsu does that for me. There's some people, it could be art. 
It can be music. It can be any activity. We can even just be typing up essays in school and you'll have a moment where everything's flowing and you just enjoy it. And that flow state is so important for people to feel. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that that factor into you actually having a flow state. There has to be like a balance of difficulty. You have to be focused in the present moment. There's all these things that go into it. Yeah. But, you know, when you're dealing with psychopathology of some kind or depression or anxiety, it's really hard to get those big experiences. And that's why recreation is so important, whatever it is doing something you enjoy can really boost your mood. And that's like one of the first line treatments for depression is behavioral activation, which is getting people moving again rather than maybe feeling stuck, staying in bed all day, sleeping too much, whatever it might be. Yeah. So flow states profoundly important for growth. Yeah. And speaking of flow states, I've only heard it in the context of um, sports. Sports. Mm-hmm. Is, Everyone it, has them. is it correct that people who are more successful at sports, in addition to doing the hard work of learning the skill, they're able to get enough access to flow state more often than others. Yeah. Yeah. They, there's people that have different, um, uh, kind of propensity for it. There's also people that have an autotelic personality, autoletic, autoletic personality. What is that? It's where you, um, really just are able to be presently focused and really enjoy the activity. So mm-hmm. like I think of like Craig Jones when he competes, he's just kind of hanging out doing his thing. It looks like he's having a good time where some people are just, you know, very tense, you know, they don't look like they're enjoying it, but they still do it, right? So there's autoletic personalities, which are much more likely to have flow states. And there's also dispositional mindfulness, which is a huge factor for flow states. Mm-hmm. So some people are just more mindful and able to stay in the present. But also the cool thing is that if you meditate, you do mindfulness, you can increase your dispositional mindfulness and then you have state mindfulness where you can just induce it by being mindful so if you look into it you can increase your mindfulness you obviously seven curries put a lot of time into playing so it's gonna be way easier for him to get into flow state because he's so good and he's playing at a very high level and he probably has all these personality factors that contribute to flow state and i betcha he does mindfulness meditations you could probably google it because Kobe used to release his own guided meditations. So a lot wow. of these guys are doing it. What is what is the recommended amount of meditation time to get into a flow state? Um, well, a flow state requires an activity. I'm saying not a flow state. When practicing mindfulness to build up yeah. uh, a mindfulness practice through meditation. Yeah. I didn't mean to say flow state. Um, what What is a, a recommended amount of time? Like, it's like say for a starter. Because I haven't, I pray which is kind of like a, because I'm visualizing and stuff, but maybe I should get more into a meditative posture, like intentionally meditate, like go there. You can, you can pray. It's just about your attention. You know, if you're praying about the future or the past, right. Or if you're presently focused in praying and recognizing what you're feeling in that moment and being presently focused, non-judgmental, then it's okay. Right. That's basically mindfulness and you can do it anytime. You can have a conversation while you're doing it. The amount that you do it, um, it depends on your own tolerance. I would say some people do better with um, guided meditation to start out with. Yeah. Right? Because then they kind of have scaffolding to mm-hmm. help them know what they want to do. Um, John Kabat-Zinn in his original intervention was mindfulness-based stress reduction, which he did to actually help people recover from heart disease, just doing mindfulness. Because, oh, wow. you know, like you get all grumpy and irritated and aggressive yeah. type A personalities. If you meditate, it reduces your risk of heart disease. 
and can help you recover from that. That's what he originally started bringing over mindfulness to do. And then he did it with the Olympic rowing team and helped them perform very well in the Olympics with mindfulness, best stress, stress reduction. So long story short, I think he had it uh, 45 minutes to an hour for about six weeks every day. Okay. Wow. I would I need say to get that's that a point. lot. Oh, I is would it? say, you know, for me, I meditate every day for about 20 minutes. That's a good amount for me. That's doable. And also I meditate before I train, depending on if I'm doing my pre-performance routine during that day. There's all kinds of sports psychology stuff I could get into. But yeah, I would say 20 minutes a day is what I like. It really depends on what your schedule will allow. Even just eight minutes of deep breathing exercise is better than nothing. And like I said, it doesn't have to be dedicated sitting meditations. You could do it any time of day. It's just a way of paying attention. So when dealing with trauma... Mm-hmm. And doing this meditative thing, so mm-hmm. starting out with, um, like you said, prayer could work or whatever, or mm-hmm. things like that. But yeah, okay, so all right, that's good. Trauma. When I make specific specific recommendation to the people that I work with, is I say, um, you know, you should be doing breathing exercises throughout the day. I would say eight to ten times. Take five to ten minutes to do it, as your schedule allows. So that adds up quite a bit, up to forty minutes. But it's like you want to think about it as filling up a bucket of good feelings. And each time you take a few deep breaths, it gives you a couple more drips until that whole bucket is full of relaxation. Yeah. Right. And you can do 20 minutes before you go to bed at night. doesn't matter anytime. You know, I would say if you're doing it all day, every day, then you're, you're trying maybe to be like a Buddhist monk. You don't necessarily need to do that much. And if you're having a hard time, you get irritable, it's causing any side effects, which are rare with mindfulness, you're doing it too much. But, you know, a couple of times a week or when you need it. But I would say it's like a, it's a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more you do it, the more it's going to really benefit you when you need to self-regulate. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, there's something I was going to ask you, but I got caught up in what you were saying, like following through about... Um, Meditation. Yeah. Oh, I remember when I first started, because I I had a meditative meditation practice and I stopped, you know, then like a straight up, not even prayer, just meditation. Okay. And um, I remember I had never done it before. And the, you know, the therapist I was seeing at the time was uh, trying to sell me on it, you know, which worked. She explained it to me. She goes, look, it's a natural calming mechanism. And she goes, do you notice, like, when you're about to do something nervous, like, say, go speak in front of people, what do you do? <sighs> All right, let's go do this. Mm-hmm. Your body already knows. You're just kind of getting in tune. And I remember thinking to myself, we, I live in a body that I have barely any idea, understanding of how it works. You know, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I get, I have a car, I don't know how it works. I don't have the wires. If something broke, I'd have to take it to the dealership. But I've been living in this body for quite a while and I don't know very much about it except what to stick inside of its mouth, you know, and when to shower, right? right? Yeah. But it's crazy that we don't know that much about ourselves. No. And how it functions. I mean, there's all these things like when we take a deep breath, it activates our vagus nerve, which helps with the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and relax and recover side of our central nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system is going to be the thing that gets activated anytime we're stressed out. And in trauma, we have chronic sympathetic nervous activation. Um, So you have to deactivate that sympathetic nervous system. 
Yeah. And the deep breathing is a good way to do it, but also meditation. And, and I like breathing as my anchor for mm -hmm. meditation, but some people prefer music. Yeah. Some people prefer sight. And we have to realize that there's different anchors we can use. Some people like grounding exercises where we just perceive ourselves connected to our chair, connected to the ground. That's a very powerful one, right? So grounding exercises are great. And it doesn't matter what anchor you're using, but you need something to keep you stable while you have experiences come up and then you can start investigating how judgmental you are, right? And what happens a lot of times with trauma is you have uh, an image that'll pop in your head of, you know, the experience and then you'll start, oh, that's terrible. That's horrible. I can't stand it. This is the worst thing ever. And all those judgments come in and, it, and you already have this experience, which is unsavory, but then you're stacking on all the judgments on top of it. Yeah. You know, it's like this, let's say I have a, a bad back or I have pain. Oh, yeah, this, this is the worst pain I've ever felt in my whole entire life. Like you're taking this terrible experience and you're stacking a judgment on top of it. And that, that causes over time avoidance and negative feelings. But if you can just be curious and explore that pain, maybe you realize it changes, it ebbs and flows, it changes in shape and sensation and, and quality. And maybe I can even turn down the volume by not really paying attention. I'm going to let it be there. I'm not going to force it away. But I'm going to let it be there. And I'll pay attention to it if I want. But I'm going to be able to engage in a conversation fully, even though I'm dealing with maybe back pain, right? Just to give you an example. So that idea of judgment and depending on where you're putting your anchor, you can investigate that judgment. You can be presently minded and not traveling into the past, traveling into the future, which happens oftentimes in trauma, right? That mental time travel is where a lot of people suffer the most. If we say in the moment, usually we feel okay. We can deal yeah. with the moment most of the time. Yeah. But if I start thinking about something that happened years ago, you know, it might cause me to ruminate, feel really guilty, feel really upset, or worry about something going on in the future. So that mindfulness is a profound skill that um, it takes time to, to hone it, and, and, but there is benefits to it. Yeah. That's my sales pitch. No, hey, it's a, it's a good sales pitch. I, I think that um, I agree mindfulness is very important. Um, and being stuck in time, you know, I actually personally know people like that that are um, like even stuck in their childhood. You know, there's a woman I know that, you know, um, she like despises her sister because her sister was treated better than her as kids. And I think this woman, she's That's rough. she's approaching 60 at this point. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Those scars don't go away. Yeah. yeah. And even though she she knows rationally it doesn't, you know, you're supposed to let that go by now. Her parents it, passed on everything, right? Yeah. 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 Well, her dad, the mom's, you know, getting there. And that's when actually when she opened up to me about it when her dad passed away. That's when it happens. And I was thinking like, Wow, man, that's um, that's a long time to hold on to, you know, your sister, like, I don't know, got an extra gift for Christmas, you know, things like that. But it's, it's crazy how we get stuck in those, in those places like that. Like just the human mind's bizarre, man. It's just bizarre. Mm -hmm. I, I, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sad that, um, we're just now in modern medicine, I think we're still touching on the, just the tip of the, of the iceberg of, of what it is. Like my sister and I, we frequently have conversations about my dad because he caused some damage to us. And, um, I, seriously, like, I think we probably talked about two days ago, this conversation probably occurred within the last two or three days. And we're talking about, man, could he have gotten help? 
you know, and we're like, I think when he was coming out of Vietnam, they're still doing lobotomies, you know, like they thought, oh, you got a problem here. Let's just cut a hole and, you know, poke around a little bit. And a few. Yeah. yeah. Was that, wait, was lobotomies around in the 60s? Uh, to my knowledge, they were doing more of them before that. But yeah, oh, okay. I mean, even one of the Kennedys got lobotomized. So it was the Kennedy daughter. Yeah. That's the equivalent of like hitting your TV on the side, right? Or worse than that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it, if it's not bringing the signal. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't even like, it's, it's just nuts, dude, that, you know, it's 2023 and we're barely having these breakthroughs. Like I, I follow a website called uh, science alert. I'm a dork. I have Science Alert and Science Daily. I read them daily. I love that. Oh, you are you into those websites? No, but I love that you do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm on it, dude. I think I had them a while ago. Yeah, everything from astronomy, uh, medicine, health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're pointing out that dementia or Alzheimer's, I can't sure which one, if there's an extra wrinkle in the brain in a certain region, they've, they're not sure what it means, but they're a major reduction in developing one of those diseases. You could go there. I think it's Science Daily. No, it must be Science Direct. It's a yeah. yellow logo. There's Science Daily and Science, I don't know, one of them. Yeah. I'll show you afterwards. But it's like we just figured this out. You know what I'm saying? Like, as many brains. Like did you have to do an uh, autopsy, I mean, or work on cadavers in college? Did you do that? No, I never got the, the pleasure. I, I'm, I didn't go to medical school. I'm a psychologist. Oh, okay. They well, don't let us cut people open. Well, then, well the school I went to – they had it, you took it as anatomy and kinesiology. So if you're a PE teacher, you you had to cut up cadavers. Wow. Yeah, that's they actually still have it. it's in um, La Sierra University, which is in Riverside. Yeah. Yeah, they got a whole cadaver department, and it's weird because like every, every like few weeks, there's a new body coming in in the body bag, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking all these brains sitting in here, and doctors, students, and then physicians, researchers. We just figured that out. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. but. Which is a good sign. I guess there's growth. You need to add that, you know, Alzheimer's is, they're all dementias traditionally, but in the, the spectrum of dementias, you have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, temporofrontal dementia. You have okay. all these different diseases and it can be a multiplicate. You can get all kinds of them and they can be overlapping and co-occurring. Yes. Um, and uh, yes, but the thing is it's difficult research to do because it's so multifactorial. There's so many potential contributing things like um, plaque, right? There's certain plaque buildups in the brain, correct? So they think that they've overemphasized that as a factor for leading to it. Okay. They think that they've wasted a decade of research chasing that down, but it hasn't led to a lot of intervention yet. So they're mm-hmm. trying to figure out other causes, right? And I, I don't specialize in dementia, um, you know, but there's like little things that we can do, you know, not cooking on tinfoil, you know. Really? Not picking our nose. They found that these things can contribute. Um, oh, I've, I've done both. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try to avoid that. But somehow they think that it could be vi- viral or bacterial. You're introducing these things into your nose. We could go up and are actually associated in certain populations with more dementia. I'm getting dementia, dude, for sure. Is it, is it in your family? Do you have no, anybody? No, I, but... I have close personal family. Oh, really? Yeah. My, is there a genetic piece? Uh, yes. Oh, Very man, big I'm one. sorry. So my, my maternal grandfather died from Alzheimer's. He was a lumberjack, really solid dude. Um, but yeah, it, it runs in the family. He died young. So I have to be aware that I need to take care of myself. I need to take care of my heart. I need to exercise and I need to do things that are cognitively stimulating. And it's very important as you get older to be socially engaged. You know, so I'm going to be like Master Carlos sitting on the side of the mat, stretching, just yelling at guys yeah. just so that I can stay active. 
Yeah. And even if we do all these things, you know, the reaper can still come for us. If we live long enough, they believe that everyone will experience dementia. But it's an important thing that what is good for your heart and for your body is good for your brain. So managing your blood pressure, managing your cholesterol, take care of yourselves. If you haven't gone to a doctor lately, I know some people don't like medical professionals. Find one that works for you. (laughs) Go to a primary care provider on a regular basis. I know a guy named Dave. And Dave, I'm putting you on blast. I'm not saying your last name, but if you're listening, Dave, this he refuses to go to the doctor. He's, I don't know, 49, 50. He hasn't been to the doctor since he was a teenager, dude. One time, his even his calves and his ankles swelled up and he refused to go. And I was like, dude. That's edema. That could be a lot of different things. <laughs> could be kidney problems. It could be other things. There's something in his mind. Or yeah. He just can't get himself to go. I don't know. It's, it has, I don't know what it is. Yeah, man. and I can tell you I've had lots of patients, uh, and I'm not going to talk to their specific situations because, you know, it's not for me to share their stories, but let's just say all of a sudden somebody doesn't go to the doctor, you know, whether they are undocumented or don't have access to care, whatever it is, for some reason they don't go. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they experience a stroke. And then they realize after they need... Um, you know, medical intervention, they were diabetic for 10 years, you know, and they're potentially going to need an amputation. So are you talking about Dave? Cause that's the, are you reading? The, seeing to, <laughs> that's the writing know. on the wall, Dave. Sorry. Yeah. But these things happen and it, it's always better to know and manage them beforehand because you only get one body and once damage is done, you know, with like a hypertension over decades, it doesn't go away. It causes big problems. Dude. I told you about my heart condition, right? No. Yeah, okay. As I, oh, I, I, you only know half the story. As I was uh, going, like leading, hold on, where do I start this story? I was getting dizzy training at uh, GB Irvine, uh-huh. like passing out. Yeah, there's recently a guy that had a heart attack there. Yeah, that was two weeks after I stopped training, or a week or two after I, AJ. Oh, no. You, you'll know AJ if you see him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but this is even before, like I happened before and I told Philip, well, I'll tie it into AJ too. Mm-hmm. So... I was getting dizzy, dude, and I was prepping the summertime tournaments and stuff. Yeah. And, um, like, Philip would, like, I would sh- I'd shoot on him and he would sprawl. He's not even grabbing my neck. He's just, you know, f- stopping the shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, dude, you got me good, man. You know, He goes, I didn't even squeeze you, man, or whoever. And I was, like, passing out, dude. And so I was like, I need to go to the doctor. Yeah. So I'm driving to the doctor, driving up the freeway off-ramp, on-ramp, and it's like, it feels like you're been on Superman the Ride. Yeah. It felt like Superman the Ride, just going up to the freeway speed. So, I, yeah, I felt like, no, the feeling, you're like, oh, man, I'm going too fast. Yeah. That feeling. You're pinned against the seat. Yeah, but I wasn't pinned against it. It just, the, the my mind, you know, like that. Gravity. Yeah. Yeah, the or the brain can't process. Like, you're, it's too much movement. You felt super heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I go to the doctor. They go, they run, they go, your heart's great. Uh, you know, they listen to my heart and. This and that, and EKG. Go, do you want know, me do an extra test? Um, let's scan your neck and do some other extra tests, whatever. They scan my neck, and they're like, "Oh, let's do further things." Come to find out, my whole vascular system. And they first they found on the scan of my neck, it got crazy thick, and it and it doesn't, you know, your uh, veins and arteries they squeeze with your heart, they pump. Yeah. Mine aren't pumping. I'll show you the test afterwards. I actually have the test results on there. So there's a chart that has like zero to one hundred. Yeah. And it's like a, um, there's a marker on there. So that's your risk of heart attack or stroke. I'm way on the right, like 
ninety something percent chance or eighty seven percent chance of marking off. They go, you can't train. You need to stop what you're doing right now. And so while this was happening, um, I actually ended up in the hospital. And uh, I end up in the hospital. I'm a Tylo sin. I end up in the hospital, but I mean, end up in the hospital. But while in the while I was in the not the hospital hospital, but just the center where they're doing all these tests, I'm getting checked. I'm calling my ex. Hey, oh, I can't make it. I got to do it. That's when she initiated cheating on me. I'm in the hospital about to die, dude. <laughs> and, then so, and then it triggered, the, then the trauma triggers on top of it. So that was all like, it was like the perfect storm, dude. So yeah. that was on top of it. And so um, that's why I remember, that's one thing I thought like, because she eventually confessed. And I was thinking like, I wouldn't leave a friend hanging like that, no. like in the hospital uh-huh. about to die. Like I was there and they're, they're literally trying to figure out how much of my, um, what medications to get and how much of my life expectancy this is going to affect. Because they weren't sure if a medication was going to work. Like even now when I train, when you see me, I still get dizzy, but I'm on three meds and there's this extra test I have to do. But they had to, dude, I had to go through a, a um, massive amount of, ultra, like the, you ever have someone stick the ultrasound into your stomach and aim it up towards the bottom of your heart? Like they did crap like that and MRIs and CTs. And um, so, yeah. While I was happening, I was getting uh, cheated on. So, uh, which ca- ties in the drama. Like, but it, it made me think like, um, it, I'm forgetting now the point I'm telling the story. Oh, the vascular system, hypertension. Yeah. So, um, so my veins and everything are just freaking jacked. And so they gave me some medications to um, try to help it relax. Mm-hmm. And they try to eat Mediterranean or plant-based. I mostly eat vegan now. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. If you notice, I've, I don't, I'm not as big as I used to be. I used to be like one, I don't know, um, crap, like maybe six months ago, I was almost 168. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I fluctuate between 142 pounds and 148. Me too. Oh, get the hell out there. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a two points. So that right there, um, attitude. So as I was going through EMDR, that was one of my concerns. Like I might just drop dead because I had to keep the thresh, the stress down. But I was mm-hmm. like, I can't, this is the dilemma I faced. Mm-hmm. I had to get out of the pain. Yeah. So I was like, that's why I told the, the, the EMDR doctor, let's go full on, man. Mm-hmm. Push me through. If I die, I die. And the only accommodation she had to make for me was the garbage can for me to puke, which it was only dry heaving. I, I, I wouldn't eat before I go. And I didn't expect it. But, you know, because I've seen a lot of gore. Like, here you talk about how um, soldiers have PTSD, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, ass- I'm assuming a lot of it's from combat, being shot. At. I've been shot at several times. Yeah. I want to, I'm going to set up this podcast. I have that board that you saw I did the sound with. I can actually bring in live calls. So I'm going to call during one of my, I'm going to do an episode eventually when I could talk, because some of the traumas I can't talk about without emotionally breaking down. And, but once I get to that point, I'm going to bring on one of my friends, like one of my friends, Rick, who is one of, I'll call him a survivor yeah. of the, of the hood, you know, cause other, other friends are dead a good amount. And then prison or mentally ill, believe it or not. Some of them took so much drugs, like they were slowly trying to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. But like Rick has been shot at with me so many times. Like there has been a time where we ran towards a fence and parts of the fence were getting blown away and mm-hmm. he fell on the ground and I was dragging him while we were getting shot at. We were so fortunate. We've had friends get shot and die, but we didn't. Yeah. And there's no processing. There's no like, hey, let's um, get professional help. We would just stick it in our pocket, keep moving. Yeah. So, so those memories are in there, but occasionally he and I reach out on Facebook. 
and we talk about it. Because our very first friend that was killed, his name was Jason, and he was murdered when we were 15. And um, we got it, we saw him dead. And it's just like, I didn't realize that caused PTSD. And he got shot with a uh, high-powered rifle through the chest. So you can see a baseball size. No, the the exit's a baseball size, right? And, And so... But then you have friends that were just killed, like, I think from 10th grade, not to sound like a broken roof, I said this before, I apologize, everyone, but from 10th grade to 12th, I had um, at least 10 friends killed, you know? And then I just, like, what, seen violence. And here's another trauma that I didn't realize was trauma. Mm-hmm. There's a person I know that um, put a gun to someone's head, and this guy made him get on his knees and beg for his life, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, Cock, cock, you know, is a revolver, cocked the revolver, put it to his head and asked me, should I shoot him? So it was up to me whether or not this guy lives. I was 15 and I was looking at this guy. This guy was like, uh, like shaking. I go, yeah, I felt uncomfortable even asking. I was like, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. He goes, you're lucky. But the guy who did is killed a lot of people and let him go. And now as an adult, when I think about that, it kind of horrifies me to think hey, that guy's life was in my hands. Like I say, like literally saved his life. Yeah. Just, I was 15 years old. Why yeah. would a, a 15 year old have the decision whether or not someone lives? But see crap like that, those are the traumas that, that those are the small traumas that were attached to the big ones. You know what I'm saying? That's such a crazy experience. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of crazy stuff, but I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I get off track, dude. No. But my, the reason why is I want to bring my friend Rick because I don't think that he could come like out here. That's a sick idea. That sounds like sick in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring him on as a caller. Maybe I could bring him on the show. I mean, he he's out in Chicago. He became a truck driver. Uh, but he's like, man, like we read on Facebook, he's like, man, we survived a lot. We survived a lot. Um, we've been set up by girls, like girls like, hey, sometimes guys will use it like a honey trap to try mm-hmm. to get you over there to try to get you. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like just our friends, like remember this guy or... Excuse me, I'm about to hiccup. That's okay. Oh, it went away. But it's it's just, um, I feel like a war survivor. And he said the same thing. Like, man, we were like, we feel like we survived a war. Yeah. And and there, but there was no, there's no veteran benefits and there's no help. And what it's what it's made me, what it's brought me to understand. I mean, to I have no science to back this up, but it's made me to realize that all the traumas that I experienced growing up in the in the urban environment is that is that the proper term? Okay, well, the hood, all the all the stuff I I experienced growing up in the hood, is that now I see now that I'm um, done my healing or road of healing, I've realized that there has to be PTSD in the in the hood, in the in the urban areas, in the bad areas. Yeah. That's something that people don't speak about. Why would this person do this or what? Dude, they're damaged. There's so much that they have seen. Yeah, you know, and people don't realize that. Like we're empathetic towards soldiers or even a kid that was sexually abused Mm -hmm. but we're like being abused like we're young seeing older adults from our neighborhood do violent things to people and we're witnessing it and then or things happening to our friends but that's not viewed as trauma you know i mean you, you bring up a great point that there's so many things that can take a toll on someone and lead to difficulties down the line you know, there's cultural trauma, even, you know, just being in that environment, knowing people in your family that have been, 
you know, had bad situations because of whether it be socioeconomic causes or because of race, because of gender, because of sexual orientation. Yeah. That can all just be passed down. You know, people that are, I know, uh, depends on the group, which one they prefer. Let's say Native American, some people prefer Indian. You know, they have cultural trauma that, that is passed down. And then you can see within those communities, lasting disparity of substance use and suicide yeah. and way more issues with um, kidnapping or abduction. And it's just, you know, you could say there's other things like weathering, you know, being a person of color. So many more issues, not just you know, pregnant women that deal with hypertension because of the things that they have to go through with medical providers, among many other things. But with mental illness, it's another factor that if you have an untreated mental illness, they found that certain mental illnesses are much more likely to lead to physical illness. So I believe that. That makes sense. People that have untreated depression tend to have much more heart problems and deal with you know, some kind of heart disease. People that have untreated anxieties tend to have gastrointestinal problems. You'll frequently see that they have some kind of issue. With I could see that. Irritable bowel or some other kind of issue. I had untreated uh, anxiety and yes. And, and with PTSD, all kinds of issues, as you can imagine. And it's a huge risk factor for dementia, you know, gastrointestinal problems, other issues throughout the whole body. And it's just the toll that these things take on the body that, you know, you can't afford to not treat these things. You deserve yeah. care that you want, whether it is with a shaman, whether it is with a priest, whether it is with a psychologist, everyone deserves it. And, it, you know, we just need more access. Whatever treatment that you're willing to do, I guess is better than nothing, but there are definitely some treatments that are iatrogenic, which is not good, like hypnosis debriefing for trauma. It's just an yeah. example. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. like, that's why I try to be a skeptic and, and just say, what are the active ingredients? Because I want to make sure people aren't selling snake oil out there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's my only adherence to that rule. But I, I definitely understand what you're saying. And, and we just see it in people all the time. That lack of access to care is a huge problem. Well, I could tell you another thing because I don't, I don't want to go too long here because we're actually filming this in the evening. And so <laughs> thank you for coming. I don't want to. Yeah, my wife's texting. Yeah. Where are you at? Yeah. Um, so I was a short, bald black guy in a dark room. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but um, just. It, I'm, I'm going to explain, like, I've never openly talked about certain, like, even the stuff I just said right now, it's just coming out, dude. Okay. But I got to be careful because I don't want anyone to get in trouble or go to jail <laughs> off yeah. of those things I'm saying. Yeah. So I'm, like, talking general. Good. But I'm trying to talk more about myself. Mm-hmm. And so um, one thing, too, I just want to share, and I hope that this helps other someone who's been in this position. Sometimes I'd have trauma triggers and... Um, I would knowingly push it down. I know my trauma is being triggered, but there was this weird side effect I'd get from it. And once I got my traumas treated, not even this time, like just do cognitive therapy, this went away, right? So I started therapy at the age of maybe 24 or 25. But if I got triggered and I have like a little bit of anxiety, say when I got triggered, if I had a Snickers bar, right? I'm like, someone poisoned this. Like I would have this weird thought like that. Like the mind would trip and I go, I'd throw the bar away. And I'm like, I think I got poisoned. So I'd sit there and go, okay, how long will it take for the poison to kick in? Yeah. Because I have a crazy physical reaction and that's the only thing that I'm introducing to my body. And so yeah. the mind starts making these weird connections and I learned at least do the, when I was therapy before, I'm not like this guy's not crazy, <laughs> but, um, or also like, a, um, like if I'm triggered, 
I knew like because it would trigger anxiety. I'd have to sit by a door yeah. and I might even have to get up for a second, right? But if I have a glass of water right here or a bottle of water is closed, I will get up and go outside. Go, hey, oh, hey, I'll be right back, man. And I'll go outside kind of or just kind of shake it off and come back. But I'm not drinking that water anymore because who knows what it could have happened to it. <laughs> I'm serious. So I would even, <laughs> I learned this little coping skill because I was like, I know this isn't right. I knew it was wrong, but I would mark the water bottle. So I'd know if someone damp tampered with it. But even okay. still, I'm like, how well do I know you? So I don't think you're crazy. No, no, I don't do that anymore. That was like 20-something <laughs> years ago, dude. But I just want to explain just in case someone hears this and they're in that, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. Sometimes you're just so aroused. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're just so aroused or stimulated mm -hmm. that sometimes your body's trying to, your mind's trying to figure out what has caused this. Your, your fight or flight's kicked in. You're like, yeah. They eat a pot brownie, you know, like or sure. you start, yeah. You, yeah. So if you're eating Panic a brownie, attacks, they happen all the time. Yeah, for no reason sometimes. And then people are like, I guess I can never go on a plane again. Yes, exactly. Know, for no reason, or they will happen in public transportation, and or you go outside and you're afraid that you're in danger. Happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, like, unless if you do safety behaviors, like if you never challenge that behavior, like the water bottle thing. You're gonna walk around with it. Obviously, you've developed a, a tolerance for it. You can do. Oh no, with it's it. gone. It's okay, completely yeah. gone. I'm just saying because you, it's rooted. It was rooted in trauma. Yeah, I mean that led to anxiety. I would say, I don't know the exact origin. I believe in what you're saying. I do say that there's a lot of people that can just have thoughts that come up throughout their day. I know close personal people that I love very much that, for no reason, they'll be worried that the stove is left on. Yeah, and then it will really bug them. And mm -hmm. then they have to go and check and see if the stove is on. It's like we haven't even cooked in the stove. Well, the chances of it potentially starting a fire. Is I like, think I bumped it. Like they started like fighting yeah. like, yeah. But you just have these things that, that happen to you. Or like when I watched the Truman Show, right, with Jim Carrey, I was messed up for weeks thinking that, the, that I was part of a TV show and people were watching me all the time. Yeah, yeah. You watch that show? You know no, I, no, this is a movie, movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's Jim just, Carrey. Yeah, Jim Carrey. He's in this make-believe TV show, movie, and everyone watches everything he does. There's cameras everywhere. So when you watch the movie, you think that you're in a simulation, basically. Yeah. And and these thoughts can come up throughout your life. It's now how much do I pay into them, right? How much do I actually believe them? I think, you know, everyone has some amount of these things that happen. It's just what to be well adjusted is that you don't let it interfere with your daily life. Yeah. Well, see, I've never went that far with the thoughts. They were just always anxiety attack related. Mm -hmm. So you're saying face them and we'll wrap it up after this. Yeah. But saying face them, um, that's very hard when you're having like, say yeah. one to 10, we'll call them grand mall anxiety attacks. <laughs> Those ones, because what happens is I've had, you're, you're actually scared of you ain't the, the, the thought of having one, another one of the big anxiety attacks will give you an anxiety attack. Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, okay, well, let's say if I took the city bus and I went to Long Beach from Orange County. No, you can't do that. But mm -hmm. say if I took the city bus from one side of Long Beach to the other and I had an anxiety attack there, mm -hmm. who's going to rescue me? <laughs> like you have these crazy thoughts like that. Yeah. And so. Can I give you the pathway forward? Yeah, yeah. But finish your thought. I have exactly okay. what you're talking about. Yeah. So for me. I was able to knock it. Well, I learned to tolerate it untreated mm -hmm. till mm -hmm. I was 24. Then it just got overwhelming, right? It got, it became too much. Mm -hmm. um, it became too much, but it would come in waves. Like there's, I can go months, no problem. Then it would, this little, the, the triggers, but it, sometimes like 
I would have I would go visit the old neighborhood because there's a church where my ex-wife was associated to in that neighborhood. So I know once I go to that neighborhood, I'm triggered for the next few days. So I'm like, oh, so I have to fight to study, fight to, you know, if I'm in college at the time or fight to do whatever I needed to do. But once I got the treatment on, on the root cause of what was leading to that anxiety through cognitive therapy, no MDR, those symptoms just dissipated, you know, because I wasn't having anxiety anymore. You know, the only thing that still gives me anxiety or makes me feel weird sometimes, I should have EMDR'd this. I'm going to, if I ever go back, I'm going to go back at some point. When I drive by the California aqueduct, you ever go up to five? Mm -hmm. That gives me anxiety mm -hmm. because my sister and I used to swim in the aqueduct, dude. And you always just, <laughs> as kids, and they they would like close, there's like a water pump part, right? Mm -hmm. we, I, we swam into the pump, dude, because wow. it wasn't open. It wasn't on. And so- It could have been so bad. So the therapist, I remember one of my friends who's studying psychologists said this. He goes, it was probably triggering you, not a psychologist, student psychologist. Yeah. You're probably seeing what might have been. Mm -hmm. And that's what's triggering you. I was like, dude, when yeah. I drive the five, I don't even like to look over there. Like yeah. I can now, but it just, it gives me the GBGBs. Yeah. I mean, you're probably such a powerful imagery person now. You can develop mental imagery just by practicing it. And you've done so much rehearsal throughout your life, yeah. you probably have an incredible rehearsal memory that you can see things in a lot of detail. So you oh, can, I can, yeah. That, that would definitely contribute to how you felt if you see what potentially could happen for sure. Um, so when it comes back, back to that idea of classical conditioning, mm -hmm. stimulus will evoke unconscious responses, right? I can't physically make my heart beat faster, mm -hmm. but if I think about a jiu-jitsu match or jiu-jitsu competition before bed, my heart is pumping really fast. It's hard for me to fall asleep just because I'm thinking about the fight in my brain, right? If I think about, if people think about trauma, it will naturally evoke those feelings in your body because there's a, a conditioned response to the memory, Yes. right? So it automatically evokes those physiological experiences. So I've done a lot of prolonged exposure therapy with veterans. You know, one of the common things that you'll see is um, IEDs. IEDs are a huge problem. They've always been a problem when they're driving down the car, um, down the street in some place. Let's just give it a name uh, like Afghanistan. IED goes off. So now, you know, I do prolonged exposure with them, help them overcome their trauma, um, but they still deal with extreme anxiety every time they get in the car. And it doesn't matter how much imagery I do, doesn't matter how much we, we, we go through it over and over and over, they will always have a conditioned response, but the only thing that will reduce their conditioned response is by con confrontation with that experience. As long as something bad doesn't happen again, mm -hmm. they will relearn. Their body will learn that there isn't harm there. So they got to get back out there, get in the car and drive down the street and they can do it in baby steps, right? It's the idea that like with that water bottle. You know, maybe you don't have that exact water bottle or you take one sip, you don't drink the whole thing. You do little baby steps to get back to that point. So let's say you're deathly afraid of airplanes. Okay, so you go and sit in the lobby for a while. And then you go and if they let you get on the airplane, then get back off. And then you sit on the airplane for progressively longer times, do a short flight, do a longer flight until you're flying international. Baby steps until you get to the point where you can tolerate it. Same thing with aqueduct. Maybe you don't swim in the pump, but by being around it more and more and more, you start feeling <laughs> a little bit better, right? It's yeah, like I won't swim in the pump, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the idea is that you have to ultimately face those things that you are afraid of within reason. 
Mm-hmm. Right. There's no reason why people need to do certain experiences. Like I don't need to get into a car accident to not be afraid of car accidents, but at least I can learn how to tolerate driving again. And that that's an important part of post-traumatic growth and, and getting past it is you got to get back out there and do those things and face those fears, even though it's difficult, but you can do it in little steps. Having someone there that you trust to guide you through it helps and developing those self-regulation skills so that pre and post you can take care of yourself. So in summary, is post-traumatic growth something that not everyone experiences it, but everyone has the possibility of experiencing it, would you say? I, I would say when it comes to growth, there's lots of ways to grow, right? And, and for people, if you do things that you enjoy or that you find value in, it doesn't matter how you look. If you have, you know, a bilateral amputation, like some of the patients I talk about, or that if you're paraplegic, if you're eudaimonic in your approach to happiness and you're doing something that's meaningful, you're, you're trying your best to live a life that's true to you, whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to look like other people's happiness. I think growth is possible for anyone. But it may take changing your perception of things because we can't change an event. There's no way that we can change time. We don't have a machine to do that. All we really have is the ability to change our perspective or ourselves in the present moment. And some people have less ability to ambulate or move. But the thing that we have unlimited potential for most of the time is what we think. Awesome. And we'll close it on that. Um, you're not in private practice, right? Or is there any place that you can plug? I, I am private practice. Oh. I also do sports psychology with combat sports athletes. Um, Pack PC, you can find me, uh, Jeffrey Scholes on social media. So, can you spell it like actually give the handles? Because some people <clears throat> they'll end up writing me and asking. <laughs> I think on Twitter, Jeff, J E F F I S H U L Z E, or um, Pack P A C P C um, is going to be the private practice I work for. Pack PC LLC. Perfect. Um, I'll try to do better with my social medias. I haven't. You know, you got to be careful about how much you advertise yourself as a psychologist. You're not really supposed to. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Like that therapist you shouted out earlier, There's, it's not unethical for anyone to ever ask for a shout out. It's very generous that you did that. Uh-huh. But I oh, yeah, she never asked. That. Yeah. You're, I can't even say who I've worked with. That would be so unethical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, she just runs a great thing and I'm, I'm not ashamed of her. I think actually um, Noah, not Noah, who's the guy from Superbad? the heavier one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a huge unethical thing. Oh, is it? (laughs) You are not allowed to do that psychiatrist. Yeah. I think he has Parkinson's dementia. I have so many issues with what he did. He's basically taking advantage of his client, in my view. Oh, God. Yeah, okay, never mind that. Yeah, no, she's never asked me, just for the record. I just, I'm so happy with that place and what she's done. I'm not ashamed. I mean, that's the purpose of this man. Yeah, Yeah, it's an open book, dude. No more stigma with mental health. Right. We can hope for that in the future, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming out. And um, uh, I hope that, um, you know, for your patients and and the people you treat, man, I hope that uh, I'm pretty sure you're making a major impact in your life. You're well knowledge. You know, you're not someone who's just phoning it in. You know, I know that you have a... um, uh, passion for what you do and I just want to thank you because you came here right after work you had to drive a long distance from Long Beach just I appreciate it man and yeah. this is 
It's incredible. Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. Yes. You know, whether it is or whatever it is. For cool. Sure. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you.